Good morning. The reading today is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, um, reading verses 1 through 19. Um, The passage is printed in the bulletin. You may follow on pages 4 and 5. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took him with two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place the Lord told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven the second time and said, I swear by by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together to Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba.
We're looking today at one of the most powerful stories in the entire Bible. In fact, one of the most powerful stories in all of ancient literature as a whole. And it's good to hear it as a story and to actually put ourselves right into the middle of it and to re-experience it as our own. So what I want to do to start off is just to retell the story one more time and to allow ourselves to immerse our own lives and our own eyes and our own hearts right in the middle of this story. But let me pause and pray for a second. God, we thank you so much for your true story of grace, the story of your Son, your only son, Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to know and see what it means to engage you with all our hearts, to know you, to have our lives changed by you. And we pray that you would do all those things by the power of your spirit for us, even now. Please be present. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You recognized the voice from the moment you heard it, like the voice of an old friend, a voice that you've heard many times before. As always, it rang with authority and yet also familiarity and intimacy. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. But what followed after that simply sent your head spinning. You could barely Believe your ears. Your son, Isaac, the son I gave you as a gift, the son you waited for, for over 25 years, waiting day after day, counting even the minutes with such eager anticipation and sometimes frustration. Yes, this son, your only son, your only son, whom you love with all your heart, whom you love, sacrifice him. Give him to me as an offering, as an expression of your deepest devotion and love and worship of me. That was one of the worst nights. No, it was the worst night of your life. The agony, the confusion, the tears. I mean, it just would have been easier if you could have just said, no way, God, you're crazy, you're evil. And just walk away. But this God had been everything but evil to you. And could not have been more sane in his love and kindness towards you. The way he's loved you. The way that he has already withheld nothing from you. You barely slept that night. And so it really wasn't that hard at all to start early the next morning to slowly get that donkey ready 
to pack the things that you needed for a journey that you weren't sure would take days, weeks, how long, you didn't know. Packing one item at a time, chopping each piece of wood, knowing exactly what that wood would soon be used for, and then watching your own son carry the wood of his own eventual death. It was a three-day journey, but it felt like 300 days. Just being left there with your own thoughts, watching your boy from afar. It was a three-day journey, but it felt like three minutes. If only you could just walk on forever and never arrive at the moment of truth. It was a quiet journey. Well, quiet until Isaac, observant, inquisitive Isaac, dared to ask about that, you know, elephant in the room. Father, yes, my son. Father, we're going to go offer worship to God, right? An offering, yes, son. Well, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. But, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb, Father? My son, God himself will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb. And finally, you arrive at the mountain and slowly you gather stones in a pile. One, two, three, twenty-five, twenty-six, and then laying the wood on top of that, slowly, deliberately tying your son, Isaac, your only son, the son whom you love, laying him on the altar on top of the wood. You have no idea what is going through the boy's mind, and then maybe you're better off not knowing. And then you reach out your hand to take the knife, and you, make, you, you want to make this swift. And yet your palms, you know, are so sweaty. You adjust the grip a few times. Your hand is shaking. And you can start to hear the pounding of your own heart in your ears. And you gather yourself. And you begin to raise your arms. And then you hear that voice again. Abraham, Abraham, stop! Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't touch him. Don't do anything to him. And your knees almost buckle and you let out a gasp and only then you realize that you hadn't been even breathing for the last couple of minutes. What is going on? And you hear the voice say, now I know, now you know that you fear me, that you love me, you obeyed me, you didn't withhold from me your dearest, most precious, most treasured thing, your son, your only son, whom you love, whom I love. And your heart leaps for joy. You find yourself sobbing, tears flowing from your eyes as you quickly untie Isaac, fumbling with the knots, barely able to get it done. 
embracing him, staying there, just remaining in each other's arms. When suddenly you look off to the side and you look up and you see a ram caught by its horns in a thicket of brush. A sacrifice. A lamb. The lamb of God. A substitute for your son. A substitute for your son. The Lamb of God, a substitute for your son. So why did God do it? Why this scene? Why this drama? Why this tension? Why this heartache? Why all of this? And we're told very plainly, very clearly in this passage that it was a test, a test of true faith. We're told in verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. And you may be in school right now, or certainly you remember taking certain exams in school or in life or in work of whatever kind, and most of us don't like tests at all, but there are such things as good exams, good quizzes, the kind that are actually good for us when they're administered by teachers that are actually trying to do you good. God bless you teachers here in the room that are caring for your students well. What is a good exam? It's one that's not there just to trip you up or to corner you into a gotcha moment to demonstrate all that you don't know. No, a good test, a life-giving test, is one that allows you to demonstrate what you do know, holding you accountable for the lessons that you are to learn and to reinforce what you are to know. This is the kind of test that God was giving to Abraham. As one commentator put it, Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God actually tests us. God tests us to strengthen us. And so here we have in this passage the nature of Abraham's faith revealed. A little window into what's on the inside, proven, shown, evidenced, demonstrated. And so here in this passage, we learn, therefore, the true nature of faith. And that's what we're going to look at. What do we see here in this passage through this test of Abraham as being the true nature of faith? Three quick things. Number one, true faith is radical Love. True faith is radical love. You know, it's easy to think of faith, even that word. I don't know what comes to your mind first when you hear the word faith. It's easy to think of it as just this abstract process of grasping the ingraspable. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you, I, when you hear the word faith, I almost want to just start doing this, because this is sort of what faith looks like in my head. You're swimming in an ocean of indefinable and ingraspable things, or it's just to us often mental assent or, or cognitive belief alone. In the Bible, faith is always described in relational terms. It's always a matter of trusting a person or knowing a person or loving 
a person. Notice how much God here, when he's talking to Abraham, how much he emphasizes Abraham's love for his boy Isaac. Your son, your son whom you love. In fact, the word son is actually repeated in this passage ten times. God is just highlighting for Abraham in his heart, not just in his ears, the nature of their relationship. This isn't God rubbing it in, rubbing it into Abraham saying, you know, now I've got you. I'm going to take the one thing that you love. This is God actually inviting Abraham to consider in light of his love for his son, Abraham, what is your truest, deepest love? You see, God didn't just ask Abraham to kill his son, did he? He didn't say, get out a knife and just plunge it into your boy's heart. He said in verse 2, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. A burnt offering. Repeated six times throughout the passage. And in the Old Testament, this phrase Burnt offering is used as an expression of offering to God yourself in total devotion, in a whole life love, giving yourself to God. And here's the principle that God is working with in Abraham's life and his heart. Friends, what you love most is your true religion. What you love most deeply, most non-negotiably, most uncompromisingly, most life-definingly, what you love most is your true religion. And so here's this chance that Abraham has as God has invited him to leave and to offer to God what he holds most dear as an expression of God being his truest and dearest and most treasured passion in life. The longest journey that Abraham had to walk in this story was the journey deep into the recesses of his heart. And the greatest pain wasn't the buck knife in his hand, but it was the scalpel in his heart. You see, this passage is showing us that true faith, genuine gospel, grace-empowered faith is letting go of what is most precious to us in order to make God our prized possession. Daring to go through the process of letting go, yes, sometimes with great pain, what is most precious to us in our hearts, in our lives, in order to make God our prized possession, our highest love and loyalty. I had a friend that I grew up with who raised a number of German shepherds 
large dogs, which we also grew up with. I think I've told you some stories about our dogs. But they had outside of their window in the front a really funny sign with this vicious-looking dog uh, depicted on the sign. And it was one of these signs where you're trying to intimidate intruders and burglars and make sure that they're uh, sort of not so emboldened to enter your house. Uh, But the sign said, uh, uh, beware of owner, forget the dog. Uh, you know, we, we all have these signs that were hanging up around our lives, different areas. No trespassing signs, well, that we hang up before God. Where do you have a, a back off God or a no trespassing God sign in your life? No God, too important here. Or no God, love too deep over here. What's the Isaac in your life, in other words? That most treasured, dearest thing that even might be good in and of itself, might even be a gift from God. But was it the case that Abraham was holding on a little bit too tightly? Could it have been the case that God saw the grip of his heart encircled the life of Isaac just a little bit too exclusively. It might be your career ambitions. It might be a person in your life, a relationship, that thing that you quietly say, I need this to be happy. I need this to have peace, to feel significant. What does your soul, friends, most cling to? What's captured your imagination the most? What do you daydream about the most? God wants to be that for you. God wants to be that for you. And he offers to be that for you if you would just see him at his most generous. When we see him in the cross of Jesus. I mean, even as we look at the life of Abraham, where did this radical, exclusive, sun-sacrificing love come from? But from his own experience of a God that did the same thing for him. A God that's already offered to Abraham radical, exclusive, self-giving love. We saw this week after week. God who forgives Abraham of all his failures. A God who gets in in front of Abraham's performance and says, I'm going to bless you and be kind to you and show you and your descendants favor, not because of what you've done for me, so that my affection and acceptance of you wax and wanes according to your daily performance. No, it's by my grace. It's grounded in me, my character, my promises, my faithfulness to you, not ultimately your faithfulness to me. A God who said, I will give all of myself to you, in fact, so much so, that I myself will walk through these covenant pieces in the ceremony that we saw in Genesis 15 that communicates, look, if anyone should break this promise, that they shall be cut in two and slaughtered like these animal pieces before me. And who walks between the pieces but God himself? I will die for all of your failures. 
I will pay the price in order that I might give all of myself to you and be your God that you might be mine. A generous God who loved Abraham so richly. This is the power that Abraham had. To let go of those things that started cluttering his life, those things that he was holding as most precious to him, that God in turn might be his most prized and precious possession. True faith is radical love. But secondly, true faith we see is also proven in action. True faith is proven in action. I am not a tennis player. I wouldn't describe myself as a tennis player. I know some of you are. But somehow, I have it stuck in my head that I'm pretty good. And I've actually convinced myself over many years of sort of hitting around here and there with different friends and having had a few lessons when I was about this tall and having had a few moments where I've hit a couple good balls, I've convinced myself that I've got great potential. All I really need is just a, just a little bit more practice. All I need is just a little bit more consistency. And I'm a pretty good tennis. Hey, I mean, I watch Roger Federer on TV, right? Doesn't that make me a good tennis player? You know, I feel like I'm pretty good when I'm at home on the couch. But ain't it true? That the proof comes out when you actually step on the court like I got to this weekend and got spanked by another person, 0606. You know, one of these moments, these humbling moments where you're pretending to have a good time and you're just miserable the entire time, you know, Uh, or I'm trying to be in a great shot, you know, good shot, you know, and I'm like mad, mad, you know, are you like me? Are you like me? You know, you can convince yourself of a lot of things, but it's when you step onto the court that your true ability, what's really on the inside, is seen. And the Bible says it's no different with your faith. You can talk a good talk and you can describe all that you want to describe about what you think your faith is all about or what your truest values are all about, or what your most prized possessions are all about, but at the end of the day, you always see it in the life that you live. In your actions, your behaviors, your choices. Well, this is what it says here, verse 12. When God halts Abraham, he says, Look, do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, which means... Of course, not fear in the sense of being terrified of God, but it's this awe-filled, reverence-filled love and joy in God. Now I know that you fear God. Why? Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And what God is saying is not that he didn't know. God knows all things and can read our hearts plainly but rather that now you have played this out in real life. Now you have demonstrated. Now you know. Now we all know. Now it is seen. It is presented before us that you really do love me. 
In other words, Abraham's trust, his faith, was shown in his deeds, in his life, in his actions. Referring to this story in Genesis 22, the book of James in chapter 2 poses this question. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Faith without deeds is dead. So do you actually have a faith that tells you that God is a God who is patient with you? Well, do you really trust in God to be patient with you? Well, how do you know Are you patient with your roommates, with your children, with your family members? Or do you trust that God has genuinely forgiven your sins? Is that a faith component of yours? Do you believe that? Well, how do you know if you do? Well, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Do you freely and quickly forgive other people? Or have you received Jesus as your ultimate security? As the thing that anchors you down in a chaotic and crazy and fast-moving and rocking world? Yes? Well, then you ought to see it in real life. In a a humble character where you're secure enough not to always have to retaliate every time someone questions you at work or in your character. Or you're secure so that you're not able or not always having to find your security in other things, in what you do, in what you accomplish. I mean, if you consider yourself a follower in Jesus, of Jesus, do you live in such a way where you know that your life, your choices, your behavior, stuff out here actually does tell the true story of what's going on in here? Do you understand that? And I don't mean that in a condemning way. I don't think God means that for Abraham as well. But it does really alert us and keep us fresh hearted, doesn't it? Because it's really easy to live in self-deception. It's really easy to tell yourself that you're a pretty good tennis player sitting on the couch. And it's really easy to persuade yourself that you're pretty mature in your character and pretty good at loving other people when you're at home all by yourself. Has God got you on a tennis court lately? Sometimes he will put us through tests, through trials, even hardships, just so that we might get a glimpse into the true state of our hearts. Has God got you on a tennis court? Maybe it's a hard circumstance, a painful season. Maybe something's not going well for you in life. Instead of just begging God to take it away, or instead of just doing whatever you can to control your circumstances and get out of it, can you pause for a moment and say, God, what are you showing to me about the state of my true heart? What is this test revealing to me about the faith within That I won't go on telling myself that I'm a superstar tennis player if that's not what, in fact, I see. True faith, true faith is proven in action, is proven in 
real life. Thirdly now, true faith looks to the Lamb. True faith looks to the Lamb. You see in the heart of Abraham, even from early on, that the thing that gives him this sense of courage to step out, to dare to engage God in this test and not run, is his firm belief in the provision of God. That even early on, he has some glimmer of a sense that God will see this through. I don't know exactly how he almost says to Isaac when his son asks him, Dad, we got the wood and we got the fire, but where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb in sort of this open-ended way, not really knowing what that might look like, but I know this is a God who might provide. His faith is one that's looking forward. His faith is one that's looking for the Lamb of God, you might say. The key to understanding what's going on in this passage, to see the good news of God's grace most clearly illustrated here in this passage, is an understanding that central to this story is the Old Testament concept of the firstborn. And this is something that I was able to find in the writings and the study of one pastor teacher who's no longer alive. He's gone on to be with Jesus. His name's Edmund Clowney. And just an incredible insight to this passage where he reminds us that all throughout the Bible, the eldest son served as the chief representative of the family. Eldest sons in ancient cultures receive the family inheritance, and so they're the carriers of the family's wealth. They're, therefore, the bearer of the family's standing in society. Really, the eldest son was the future of the family, the future head of the household. So in all things, the firstborn son functioned as the representative of the whole family. Who's the eldest son, the firstborn of Abraham? And who was it in the story of Egypt when Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians and God had sent Moses in to free Israel from slavery? And God sent a series of plagues and judgments to loosen the grip of Pharaoh on the Israelites. And the last plague that was sent was what? The threat of death and judgment upon, well, both Israel and Egypt upon their firstborn sons, if they did not put out on their doorposts a substitute, a sacrifice, the blood of a lamb, that if you had that sign around your home, then God would pass over in judgment. But he didn't, uh, he didn't actually threaten judgment upon every last individual, but only the firstborn sons of families. What was he communicating there? What is he communicating here? Look, Abraham knew very well that time and again the story of his faith and time and again the story of our faith and faithfulness before God is a story of failure. That God had demonstrated again and again his patience, his kindness, his forgiveness. But without a doubt, Abraham knew he deserved none of it. In fact, he deserved the judgment of God. 
A just God, a fair God, would absolutely have to be a God that would set the record straight and give Abraham and his family what they deserved in judgment if God only operated out of justice. And so here God is demonstrating that not just Abraham, but his whole family, in fact, do deserve to die, do deserve to pay for their sins, pay for their lack of love, pay for their unfaithfulness, pay for their unkindness, pay for their flaky hearts, pay for the things that you and I do and think and desire, all these things that are everything opposed to loving God with all of our hearts and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so God says, give your son a representative of your whole family sacrificed in your place instead of you and bring him to me. Which, of course, is this rich and beautiful foreshadowing of the story of the greater son, the greater Isaac, Jesus himself, the Son of God. You know, in the book of Second Chronicles, later on in the story of Israel, Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, or almost sacrificed Isaac, is later described as being located right in the region of Jerusalem. Right in the place where Jesus later on would ride upon a donkey and go into town where not long later that he would finally be condemned to die and travel up a mountain himself. In fact, that very same mountain, by a different name by that point in history 2,000 years later, not Moriah, but Golgotha, also known as Calvary. Carrying wood on his back, not wood for a fire, but the wood of a cross. And like Isaac, trusting his father and doing what his father asked without struggling, without running away. This is God's son. God's son, his only son. And you hear in this well-known passage in John 3.16, echoing the language of this very passage, this verse that we've been leading these kids in the neighborhood through each Saturday. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his son whom he loved, gave him in death, in sacrifice, so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish as we all deserve, but have eternal life, ultimate life, true life, both now and in the afterlife. God's Son, the Lamb of God, our ultimate substitute, as it said in verse 13, the ram that stood before Abraham that was offered as a burnt offering instead of his son, God provides the true lamb, the true lamb that stands in our place before God. Abraham calls this area. God will provide. The Lord will provide. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Yireh. The Latin transliteration, Jehovah Jireh. English, 
the Lord will provide. And then we're told that through generations and generations, as this story was repeated and shared, that it was said amongst the people of Israel on the mountain of the Lord, one day it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord, one day it will be provided just like it was provided for Abraham. Just like God snuck in at the last minute, just at the right time, just when it was needed, just when it looked like death was imminent, God stepped in and provided the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Hallelujah. That's Jesus, our Savior. True faith grabs a hold of the Lamb of God with genuine, radical love, as we've said. True faith is proven in action. True faith looks to Jesus as the object of our faith. It's not a faith that's in general or in God in the abstract but it's a love, it's a trust, it's a receiving, it's an acknowledging, it's a worshiping, it's an awe-filled joy and wonder at what God has done for us in Jesus, our substitute. And if we would just see the generosity of God offered to us in His Son... Maybe, just maybe, we might start to have more of an open-hearted, open-handed ability to let go of those things that we've made just a little bit too precious to us. That maybe our hearts fondle a little bit too dearly and grab a hold of a little bit too tightly. These things that have become God to us so that there isn't any room any longer for God. Is that the story of your hearts, friends? Whether if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're just trying to figure out what that even means. Is there room in your heart for a God of love and generosity, Jehovah Jireh, the provider of His Son for the forgiveness of your sins, for the, giver, for the giving of your life in Him. Is there room enough for Him? Will you love Him in that way because He first loved you? Let's pray. God, we thank You for giving us Jesus, our Redeemer. We thank you so much for the gift. You, Father, who did not withhold your own Son, your only Son, but gave him freely for us all. We want to love you for it. We want to worship you for it. We set our hope on the Lamb of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.